The downtown lifestyle means you're living near cool stuff. You can walk to a lot of the things you want to do. Restaurants, bars, concerts, coffee shops. Your friends are nearby, and so is your work. But can you afford to live the downtown lifestyle? That's what we're asking today. Welcome to Stress Test, a Globe and Mail podcast where we look at how the rules of personal finance have changed in the pandemic for Gen Z and millennials. I'm Roma Lutziu, personal finance editor at the Globe and Mail. And I'm Rob Carrick, personal finance columnist at the Globe. Roma, we've done about five episodes so far. How do you think things are going? I think it's getting easier and more fun with each episode. I think that the topics that we're diving into seem like a natural fit for me. I'm really enjoying it. My mother has downloaded her first podcast in her life on her iPad, so that was quite the achievement. And my two kids listened to it. The younger one was playing us back in slow motion, which was a lot of fun to listen to. And I'm not sure whether that's going to count as a listen. My older son was very interested in the making of the podcast. And he was not interested in doing what you and I do, Rob. He wasn't interested in being the producer. He was really interested in the sound editing job. And he is wanting to ask TK all kinds of questions about how she makes us sound this good. Well, when I listen to the finished product, I'm in awe of the editing job that was done here because it's taking so many threads and making a great narrative out of it. You can barely hear all the background noise, like the construction happening next door or the garbage truck rolling outside. Or the fire trucks going by on the main street near my condo. Yep, it's all part of working at home in the pandemic. Actually, Rob, do you think we'll ever record this in a studio? If the pandemic was over and everything was back to normal, I would get in the car and drive Strawn and we would do it there. But this is a surprisingly good substitute and I've got no problem with it. I mean, if we never got into the studio, I think that's great. It's, you know, we're a testament to our adaptability and uh, the way we just keep raising our game. You know what? I had been working from home for part of the week before the pandemic, but I did really enjoy going into the newsrooms for part of the week as well. And I miss the face-to-face interaction. That said, I think we're really into the swing of things now and I'm really enjoying the process. Our topic today is the cost of the downtown lifestyle. We're recording this about three and a half months into the pandemic. I was just reading an interesting factoid about how the costs of downtown living have changed in the pandemic. Rents in Toronto have edged down for a few straight months. We don't know whether it's going to be a long-term trend, but in the short term, it offers some encouragement to the many people who are struggling to pay for it all while living in downtown Toronto and in other big cities across the country. There's no doubt about it. The big factor when it comes to the high cost of living in a big city has to do with your accommodation. There's also your lifestyle, the bars, the restaurants, the gyms, going out. Those are all factors, but rent is a huge determinant of your ability to pay for other things in life. One thing I've noticed in writing about millennial personal finance issues over the years is that older generations, boomers in particular, tend to criticize millennials for their spending habits. They're frivolous. They spend too much on bars, too much on restaurants. From what I see, they basically have different spending patterns, not worse spending habits. The consistent thing that we're seeing is they're spending money on all of the same things everyone else always did. They're not throwing money away. They're trying to have a lifestyle that they want to live. And as they age and get a little bit older, they're also trying to incorporate savings into that. The problem is it's harder than it was before. Right. We've got the gig economy. So some people are working jobs that aren't continuous. They'll have periods of unemployment. We have stagnant wage growth. We have high rents and high housing costs. It's harder to afford the downtown lifestyle than it ever was before. And as you progress through the ages, you start thinking more and more about things like, do I maybe want a home? 
Do I want to have kids? What kind of a life do I want to live? In every episode of Stress Test, we talk to real people and experts to see how the basic rules of personal finance have been stress tested by COVID-19. Today, we're talking about what it costs to live a downtown lifestyle. That's up next. Stress Test is brought to you by CPP Investments, manager of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. The fund is sustainable with over $500 billion in assets, thanks to CPP Investments. Learn more at cppinvestments.com. We wanted to hear directly from people in their 30s. What does it cost to live a downtown lifestyle? We got a group of friends together on a Zoom call back in April, one month into the pandemic. Meet Monica, Alex, and Jake. Hi, my name is Jake. I'm 33 years old. I'm a B2B SEO content manager uh, at a big publishing company. Hi, my name is Monica. I'm 33 years old and I'm a freelance public relations professional. Hi, my name is Alex. I'm 32 years old and I run a small cannabis company. Alex and Jake met about 10 years ago when the economy was in a downturn. They were recent university grads who couldn't find work at home, so they went to South Korea to teach English. And they still love being world travelers. When Alex came back to Canada, he met Monica. And now... Alex and I are married. They're all very close, which means they can talk together about money. Um, well, we, we talk a lot about the struggles that we have with money in Toronto. I mean, you know, now that we're in our 30s, we all have pretty good jobs pre-COVID. Um, and we felt like we finally kind of dug ourselves out of that 20-something financial hole. We still look around and realize that most of us can't, uh, I guess, obtain the lifestyle that we had thought we'd have by now. We all work really hard. We're in pretty decent paying jobs now because we've been working for more than 10 years. Uh, for a house to be some magical uh, you know, future prospect that maybe one day we'll be able to afford, it's a bit of a harsh reality for us uh, you know, in our 30s already. For Monica and Alex, their household income pre-COVID was great. It can fluctuate a bit, but combined we make just over 200000 Jake also makes great income, but takes freelance work on the side to push it up even further. Like, I feel like you need a household income of 100000 minimum in Toronto just to have a, an okay quality of life right now. And so that's why the freelance is needed. What's the cost of renting downtown, Jake? The total cost of this apartment is 2100 What about you, Monica and Alex? Our rent is 2850 At least they can share the cost of rent. Also, Alex and I moved in together when we were only dating for six months because of the financial benefit, not because it was the right thing to do in our relationship. Oh. <laughs> no. Jake also lives with his girlfriend. We'd only dated for like two weeks at that point, but it was just because the places to stay, like moving to Toronto, the price of that is ridiculous. Besides rent, these three friends love to travel the world. COVID has put that on pause for now, but otherwise, it's always been a priority. Alex and I actually quit our jobs and went traveling for nine months. And every year we'll take at least one or two trips together. Jake travels too. So I've done all Europe, did Turkey finally for the first time last year, just done a lot of different places. All that travel is expensive, so they scrimp in other ways. This is Jake. So I don't own a car. I just bike everywhere as much as I can. And Alex. Rather than taking a Uber or taxi or even TTC, I would just walk all the time, like an you know, hour 
each way to work type of thing, just because any way to save money helps. Saving money by not having a car is a benefit of living downtown. Another benefit, the selection of restaurants. It can be hard to explain that to older generations. My mother-in-law actually asked us, she's like, you guys seem to eat out a lot. Like, how do you save any money? And I know we're sitting here being like, oh, complain, complain, complain about living in Toronto, but we eat out all the time. We definitely find other ways to save. Like, we're not just out there spending our money and then complaining that we don't have enough money. We find other ways to save, to make up for going out for dinner. And we are frugal in other ways. And I just think that that's important to say because I don't want to sound like a hypocrite sitting here being like, we don't make enough money. You know, the usual boomer thing of saying that millennials are out there eating too much avocado toast and that's why they can't afford the house. It's about priorities and values. The same as my friends who are still back in New Brunswick, right? They don't go out to eat at restaurants every day, but they have two four-wheelers and a skidoo and two cars. And <laughs> what do you spend your money on and where do you save? Just to jump in there as well, um, you know, we travel a lot, but I spent a lot of time researching credit cards with sign-up bonuses and hours and hours were dumped into researching this so that we could get free flights uh, around. And so when we actually traveled for nine months, I think we only paid for one flight. Monica, Alex, and Jake agreed to give us a peek at their credit card statements to see how they spend. First up, it's Monica. She let us look at her statement for last November when restaurants were in full swing. Well, just looking at it at a glance, it's all restaurants. <laughs> um, $42 at the Federal, $47 at Cumbrae's, $30 to get my eyebrows done, which seems like such a luxury now. $17 at Ricarda's, $15 at Sansote Ramen. It's all food. <laughs> a couple of Ubers here and there. $56 at Marche Istanbul. I went there with Alex and Jake, actually. $21 at the Seafront Fish Market. I'm kind of embarrassed. It's all restaurants. <laughs> there was one concert ticket in there and a flannel jacket too. But overwhelmingly, all her expenses were restaurants. Monica knew that would be the case. I have way more regret when I buy like a dress for $100 than if I went out for dinner for $100. No questions, going out for dinner, $100, no big deal. So that's probably why there's not that much of those types of purchases on my card. Alex and Monica are married, but he has a separate credit card, which they usually put their groceries on. He looked at his December statement. Starting in, I guess, from the top, the, the first one is Virgin Mobile. That's our internet for $67.80. On Shoppers Drug Mart for $4.49. There were lots of small charges. $7 here, $9 there. Tim Hortons, the corner grocery store, a $29 ticket to the symphony. The most notable thing was that for a December credit card statement, it didn't seem like there were any presents. We don't do gifts, really. We do things together instead. You know, every time we think about purchasing things, we think about how much further it can get us on a trip because our main focus has usually been eating out or traveling. And how does it feel for Monica and Alex to read their credit card statements out loud? It makes me realize that I am, in fact, a cheapskate. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. I'm actually shocked that I spent $3,500 in November, mostly on food. I've never really analyzed it or looked at it that way. Now it's Jake's turn. He read his November statement. This one is pretty surprising, actually. I don't think I ever looked at November, which I was spending a lot because Christmas was coming up. But for example, I have 352 for an Air Canada ticket, and I actually have two of those. Air Canada 352, Air Canada 352, Bar Poet, $100. <laughs> Netflix, $17. 
YMCA, $66. Subway sandwiches, $12. I seem to eat out for lunch a lot if I look at these, which is something I clearly need to stop doing. Amazon, $310. To be honest, I can't remember what I bought, which is pretty funny because that's quite a bit of money for me not to remember what I spent that on on Amazon. Google Play, which is what I use to watch movies. I've got five of those for $6.99 each. What's the total damage? For that month, it was $1,900. We didn't ask them to read their credit card statements for a gotcha moment or anything like that. We just had a genuine curiosity about the way they spend. And the experience of reading their statements out loud definitely made all three of these friends really think about what it costs to live their lifestyle. Just that exercise of taking a look at our credit card statements, uh, it made me think, man, we need to stop eating out so much. You know, then the question is, does it mean we have to stop living our lives in order to get a house? Like, do we really want to sacrifice great experiences for a material thing? It's just kind of a challenge because obviously when we talk to, for example, people in our parents' generation, most of them bought their houses in their 20s for like $80,000. And, you know, so their perspective and their advice on what we should be doing to be able to attain the same things that they could have, it doesn't really apply to us. I think for me, more than ever, it's just in the back of my head that the cost of living here um, is it worth it in the end? Jake, that's a question that everybody living in a big city has to be asking themselves. If they find that tons of money is being sucked up by their rent or the cost of buying a house is going to be prohibitively expensive, eventually you have to ask yourself, is it all worth it? Probably when you're young, it might well be. As you get older, you're going to have to start to make some decisions. One thing that I think is really worthwhile is sitting down like this and having a long, hard look at your credit card bill. You might be surprised by what you find. One thing I'll say I've noticed over the years is that when it comes time to have children, that's when the big decision happens. Where are we going to live and what are we going to do next? Absolutely. Kids are a game changer. Once the baby's there, you'll likely spend less time at restaurants and bars. You're going to have to get a will. You'll have to start looking at how you'll pay for things like daycare. So all of these things will shift the kind of lifestyle you're living. Why is it so difficult for today's young adults to afford the downtown lifestyle? How did we get here? When I look at the struggles millennials are having to afford the downtown lifestyle today, I think back to when I was in my mid-20s back in the late 1980s and early 1990s and how easy it was for me to juggle everything. I had a junior journalist job at the Canadian Press. I was making a good amount of money, nothing extravagant. My rent was extremely cheap. It was in the low 400s, including my parking spot. I had money for going out to eat. I had money for travel. Now, I was not a very avid saver, but I came to that a little bit later on. I did not carry any debt beside my car payment and I felt on top of the world financially. I did not feel I was struggling at all. A lot's changed since the late 1980s. Millennials are entering adulthood at a very different time. Tuition has gone way up, job markets got a lot tougher, there's a lot more temporary jobs, a lot more gig work out there, work without work benefits and pensions, we have stagnant wages and the big big thing is the rising cost of housing. So rent has shot up, if you want to buy a home, that's become more unaffordable. All these things have combined to create a perfect storm where people that are coming to live in these big cities are just finding it hard to make it work. 
One thing COVID has done is expose how vulnerable people that are living really close to the edge are. I've seen a lot of surveys showing how various generations have been affected financially in the pandemic, and there's no question that millennials and Gen Z have been hit by far the hardest. They've taken the worst hits to their income, and they have the most anxiety about how they're going to get by in the future. Money worries huge, and never more so than at this time. Unfortunately, there's no easy answer here. I think we need to strive for some balance, a sustainability in our lives. The downtown lifestyle is awesome. I enjoyed the heck out of it in my 20s, and I encourage everyone to try it. But eventually, you need to sort of have a reality check and decide where am I going and how do I keep things in balance in terms of saving and spending. One of the things we see with millennials is a sense of hopelessness. They're never going to get that perfect job with a pension and benefits. They're never going to be able to have some of these things that came more easily to older generations. And so there's a feeling of, I can't get ahead of this. Why should I bother trying? That's dangerous because you can make small changes. And that's something we're going to look at next. I'm really looking forward to this next interview. It's with an expert who owns the downtown lifestyle and understands the importance of managing your money. That's up next. CPP Investments is proud to manage the assets of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. The Canada Pension Plan provides retirees a solid income foundation. In support of that important priority, we've built a well-balanced and globally diversified portfolio. It's designed to be resilient in the face of wide-ranging market and economic conditions. Through good times and bad, our professional investment teams have helped make CPP a plan that contributors and beneficiaries can count on for generations to come. Learn more at cppinvestments.com. Today I'm talking to Bridget Casey, who started the personal finance blog, Money After Graduation. It's based in Calgary. We heard from our millennial group in Toronto, Monica, Alex, and Jake, that they prioritize experiences above all else. Is this typical of what you see in this group? And if so, how does it play out in their spending? I think it's very typical. Actually reviewing their spending, it looked like a lot like my own. It looked like that of most of my friends. And I think how most millennials are spending their money are especially on restaurants, dining out with friends, and if they can afford it, also travel and concerts and entertainment like that. So very textbook spending for millennials in these. What's a typical week look like for you spending wise on lifestyle costs? Pre or post COVID? Let's do both. So pre, let's start up with pre. What was life like prior to February, 2020? Prior to February, 2020, I did most restaurant and coffee spending. I know I would go to my local coffee shop. I'd probably spend seven or $8 a day there. I would often meet friends for lunch, maybe twice a week. I would either order in or I would go out to dinner once or twice a week as well. Every so often there would be like, just meet someone for a few cocktails. We'd go to shows, some were like really cheap, $25 concert tickets. Other times I'd spend up to two or $300 to see an artist was in town. Yeah, my favorite Sundays were the ones where you get a coffee and then just wander home scents or chapters indigo <laughs> for a few hours and buy whatever catches my eye. Is this typical of you and your peers? Oh, I think so. There would be at least like two or three people with me at each of those things and doing all the same things as me. What about travel? I had a lot of trips booked before COVID hit because I'm, I'm in Alberta. So sometimes I like to get away just to see bigger cities for concerts or I was going to see some comedy artists. 
So small and large trips in that respect. You're a longtime personal finance blogger and social media presence. Cost it out for us pre-pandemic, the restaurants and the coffee to start with and then add the trips. Restaurants and coffee was probably about $100 a week, maybe a little bit more depending on the places that we went. Trips reign in price from about $1,000 to $3,000. I don't think I've ever spent more than $3,000 on a trip, so that would be the ceiling. How has the pandemic affected the math of living the urban lifestyle for people like uh, Monica, Alex, and Jake? <laughs> I'm sure it took down their dining out and restaurant spending and cocktails, drinks, everything like that quite a bit, any kind of events, all of that shut down. And suddenly you're trapped in this very small space that you're renting, you're told not really to go outside. I was really grateful for the size of my apartment and how much I had invested in decorating in it because I suddenly had to be home all the time. And I think for millennials that are in these urban centers where you kind of lose that nightlife or even the day-to-day -day busyness of the cities, I think the pandemic really brought to light that maybe the trade-off was quite high to live in an urban center. Bridget, I'm trying to understand the psychology of the spending habits of, uh, of young people. And it strikes me that social media and fear of missing out must play a role in this. The idea that your friends are out doing cool stuff. Why are you not doing it? Why not just join right in? Talk to me about that. We are marketed to constantly. Like my friends and I joke all the time how often we're tricked by Instagram because we'll be scrolling through. An ad will pop up from a local business or somewhere else. We click on it. It then follows you around the web for the next two weeks. So I don't know if it's so much of our friends doing it as it is just expert marketing algorithms. The other thing that I notice with millennials, and I did with myself, especially when I was in my 20s, is there is a little bit of a sense of hopelessness with the long-term financial goals. I mean, when you're looking at the prices of houses across Canada or the cost that it will be to retire, you think, I'm never going to be able to afford this, so I'm just going to treat myself to a $14 martini because... Yeah, it's expensive, but at least it's something I can get. What do you think about the idea of setting aside a few years to just live it up and then getting serious about money? I don't think that's a good idea. I think it sounds tempting, but it's so hard to change your behavior. People always have in their head that they'll be able to flip it like a switch. That's why they're like, oh, as soon as I pay off my debt, I'll start saving. Or yeah, I'll just live on a really strict budget for the short time frame and then I can stop. But it's way easier to make small changes to your behavior over time that have big impacts than try to do it all at once because you can't follow through. No one can follow through. This is exactly why everyone's going to run back to the restaurants when COVID is over. Like we respond to stressors in our environment. So you have to create habits that protect you against things that will throw you majorly off track. Now, I'm sure this will not come as news to you, but the baby boomer generation and older Canadians than that do not understand what's on the mind of younger Canadians at all these days. So the cranky boomer always asks, why don't you just eat out less? Why don't you just drink at home? Why don't you make your own coffee? What are your thoughts? Because then we don't get to do anything. <laughs> like, at this point, young people are so overburdened by student loan debt. Wages are stagnated. So they're working super hard just to try to get a foothold in the workforce and in their careers and move up in those with essentially no traction. Now you're telling them, oh, in addition to living in a city you can't really afford and at a job that's working you to the bone, like, please never go out to dinner or ha ever buy coffee. I That's a miserable existence. And I think we just have to 
forgive young people and let them have some luxuries in their budget so that they can build the momentum and get the traction that they need elsewhere in their finances. I mean, the answer isn't millennials are spending too much on avocado toast and lattes. The problem is that we're not paying them the $30,000 more for their job that they really deserve if we were going to keep wages with inflation. I would like to hear your views on debt and whether it's inevitable for these low-income young people trying to live an urban lifestyle, live downtown, enjoy all everything downtown has to offer. Can you do it without accumulating debt somewhere, somehow? You can absolutely do it without accumulating debt if you aren't a student. Student loans are virtually unavoidable unless your parents have paid your tuition for you. And I feel like as long as you attack those aggressively. Like I usually tell people you should be able to pay them off in half the timeline that the government gives you. So most federal and provincial student loans will give you a 10 year repayment uh, timeline. If you pay it off in half that and you can still enjoy your life on the side, I mean, that's perfect. Keep doing that. There's no reason to be going into credit card debt or taking out a line of credit so you can get cocktails with your friends every Friday. So that's a hard no. And the other thing I would tell people is it is actually much different now that I'm in my 30s than it was in my 20s. Like I felt very behind and it was very difficult to get traction and a foothold when I was in my 20s. But as the years go by, like your income generally does increase, your debts go down, and then you do have a lot more freedom in your budget, at least until you have children. It's important for people to remember, like they always have the sense of urgency that they need to get into the real estate market right now, or they need to do something else right now. And I mean, no one's going to know that you bought your house two years later than you planned. So I think people just need to slow down on pressuring themselves on these milestones so that they can better afford them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it always strikes me that the benefit of these longer lifespans that we're living these days isn't just that you get to live to 92 and instead of 90, it's you can sort of take longer to do everything. So take a few more years to find your feet in the workforce and uh, to save for a house down payment and buy a house later on because you're going to be working later. Now, you mentioned that the determining factor for student debt is whether you have generous parents who've paid for your education. Give me a sense of what you're seeing in terms of how parents are supporting their adult kids in other ways, helping them with their cell phone bills, rent subsidies. Are you seeing any of that? I am for more affluent families. It really depends on the socioeconomic class of your family and what they can afford to give you. Generally, the wealthier the parents are, the more they will pay for for their children. But middle class and like lower income families are really struggling to afford anything for their children. And often the parents will help to their own detriment. So parents that are giving their kids four or $500 a month to help them with rent, I mean, sometimes that's compromising their own retirement security. And I think that's a very dangerous position to be in. I mean, over the past 10 years that I've been writing about personal finance, I've changed my perspective before I used to be like, cut the cord, don't help your kids, like let them sink or swim. But now I recognize the costs are just so ridiculously high that if you can afford to help your children out, like give them that financial advantage because they need it, especially to survive in these cities. Just please don't do it if it's going to compromise your own financial security. My take as the parent of a 23-year-old, a 26-year-old, and I have lots of friends and family with kids in similar ages is that it's happening a fair bit. It's kept fairly quiet. 
but I think this kind of financial support is flowing down to varying extents. And the feeling is my kids need some help. The economy isn't very welcoming for them and they're not where they should be. And if I have the means, I will help out. Exactly. What about retirement? I mean, when I was in my 20s and I started working, I was not saving for retirement. It wasn't on my mind. I wasn't interested. My dad kicked my butt, so I finally got around to it. What about today's young people? Are they thinking about the need to save for retirement? So many are in gig jobs. They don't have pensions. It's super important. They do it. Is it on their radar? They know that it's something that they should be doing, but they almost never know how to get started. Like in that context, I think it's actually a lack of understanding of how easy it is to save for retirement. Because when I tell people, oh, you can just open an account with a robo advisor and put $50 a month in and they were like, what? That's it? And oh, of course I can do that. Because I think a lot of young people in their mind, they're like, oh my God, I need to save $900 a month for retirement. I can't afford that. This is something I'll think about three months from now. And they keep putting it off and off instead of building the habit with a really little amount. So if we can find ways to communicate that just start with whatever you have and get going, that's the most important aspect because they don't realize how easy it is. Is that a failure of the young people or is that a failure of the investment industry to talk to these people and say we have a solution that works for you at your level i mean i don't know where all the systemic failures are they're they're everywhere part of it is their parents who just lucked out on huge financial gains in real estate and they had pensions so they didn't need to save for retirement on their own they're not necessarily aware of how good the new fintech tools that have come to the market i think many of the financial brands are doing a great job marketing but the traditional investment industries that have mainly come from the big banks they're of course not promoting these savvy little robo advisors they're not they're not telling young people oh you have more options than ever look how easy it is they're still saying like please go in our bank's mutual fund so i think the way that we've used banking has changed and it's changed the access to information so millennials aren't necessarily getting those suggestions from an investment advisor that maybe their parents were 30 years ago because they're not seeing their investment advisor. They need like commercials on YouTube and some ads on Instagram to get them saving for retirement. That's the secret. Bridget, at what age should you be on track in your finances? Say you've got an emergency fund, you've got retirement savings, you either have a house down payment or you're on track to get one. What is that cutoff age? 35. <laughs> I know a lot of people think that it's 25 or they think they should have everything figured out by 30. I don't think that's reasonable at current cost of living prices. I think if you have most things under control by 35, you're doing really well compared to your peers. How do you think that compares to previous generations? Oh, previous generations, they were set by 22. They had everything they needed. They had a house, they had a job, they had a pension, all by 22, 23. Late starts at 25. Explain to a skeptical boomer exactly how it's different for your generation. I think what boomers don't realize is how much the costs have gone up. Many boomers will be like, oh, well, I started at $32,000 a year in 1982. And it's like, yeah, that person will still start at $32,000 a year now, except their rent is $3,000 a month and they have $50,000 of student loans. And like, they're only going to make it because they have to live with four other roommates and live on ramen for the rest of 
their lives. And then the other thing is they always talk about, oh, interest rates were double digits for me when I bought my house. And I'm like, yeah, but your house was $40,000. You also had double digit interest rates on your savings accounts and your GICs. Now millennials, the only way they can enjoy any financial security is in the stock market. It is more accessible than ever, but many people are rightfully intimidated by it. And like now I have to take on risk to get a five, six, seven, eight, 10% return. If I could have gotten that on a GIC, like no risk, 10%, I just, I can't even process how nice that must have been. And now they have to take on huge financial risk in order to get any kind of safe return that was just handed to boomers. And they start to get ahead and they make it in their late 20s, things are okay. Then they have a baby and daycare is $2,000 a month. Like it's just wild how many hurdles young people have to overcome to just get the baseline that their parents had right out of the gate. And it's so frustrating to tell this to older generations because they just clap back that we're lazy and entitled. And I think like not wanting my post-secondary education to cost $10,000 a year, it doesn't make me lazy or entitled or for me to spend less than $25,000 a year on daycare. Like, really? Like, it's just, it drives me nuts. And then they put all these pressure on young people that they're failures for not hitting the milestones of adulthood that are so important, like homeownership, marriage, children, and those are all really expensive things that we're priced out of. We're running the race with weights around our ankles and just like cut us some slack, please. You mentioned earlier a sense of hopelessness, uh, a feeling that why should I bother trying to be careful with money when I'm getting swamped anyway? Offer us some words of hope so that millennials know there's it's worth trying. You will get better. First, I just want to acknowledge that it just feels that way. And that's the normal feeling. It's not actually as dismal as you think. If you stick to the things that you're supposed to be doing, and I really mean like the simplest things, like committing to an emergency fund, like I usually tell people to start your emergency fund, just transfer $25 a week into a savings account. That's all you need. That'll save you over $1,000 in a year. When you're two years in, you do have thousands of dollars saved. You've moved ahead in your career. You've found other ways to optimize your spending. So it does get better, but you have to commit to the journey. Okay, thanks, Bridget. Yeah, of course. Nice talking to you as always. I usually give three takeaways at the end of every episode, but in this case, I think one sums it up nicely. If you want to live downtown, you will have to find a way to save. It will be hard, but it must be done. You will have to save for retirement, for future trips and vacations, and for emergencies. The pandemic really highlighted that. Roma, what are your thoughts? I thought Bridget was a great guest. It's important to understand everyone is in charge of living their own life. There's no judgment applied here. You just have to make some decisions that allow you to do that and not be financially stressed. At the end of the day, it's up to you. Thank you for listening to Stress Test. This show was produced by Hannah Sung, editing and mixing by TK Matunda. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to Monica, Alex, and Jake in Toronto, and to Bridget Casey of Money After Graduation, based in Calgary. If you like what you heard, let the world know. Leave us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone who wants to live the downtown lifestyle and get their house in order, send them this show. Tell them to subscribe to Stress Test at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or their favorite podcast app. And if you have a question for us on the topic of how much it costs to have kids, that's our next episode. Open your voice memo app on your phone, record your question, and email the file to me, Roma, at R-L-U-C-I-W at globeandmail.com. The and is spelled out. 
You can find us at theglobalmail.com where we cover all things financial. Thanks for listening. Stress Test is brought to you by CPP Investments, manager of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. Canadians can be confident in the fund's sustainability. In the last 10 years, CPP Investments has earned more than $300 billion for the Canada Pension Plan. With over $500 billion invested around the world, CPP is set to provide a retirement income foundation for generations to come. Learn more at cppinvestments.com.